Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. It's Jamin and Q here. We are your news and discussion podcast on Michael Jackson and the Jackson family, made by fans for fans. Um, and just as we start this episode, I want to remind everybody that each co-host on the MJ Cast and every guest, we all have our individual views and, and opinions, um, just like you guys listening out there. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. We are just a couple of mega Jackson fans. And yeah, I guess sometimes life gets in the way of us releasing exactly on time or episodes in the order we had planned. So our good friend, Charlie Thompson, has stepped up to the plate to help us keep on schedule. And he agreed to us opening the game floor to questions so we could field them what is with all these sport references? My God. Okay. Um, anyway, he, he got so many questions, way more than I ever got for my Q&A episodes, both of them. What is oh, Anyway. But just remember, just remember, we advertised Charlie's pretty strongly on social media. We did not advertise yours at all. He has a meme. I don't have a meme. <laughs> okay. That's my job for the weekend. I'm making you a meme, Q. <laughs> Look, Charles, Charles, I think, has done a really great job of answering so many questions. I've had the pleasure of listening back to the episode just in preparation for release, all two hours of it. Um, I really, really enjoyed the stories Charlie had to share. And if you're a Charlie fan, you are in for a treat. There are over two hours of, of Charles's strong ironclad opinions and heartfelt fan stories. Um, just a disclaimer there, there's a, quite a bit of swearing in the episode. It's definitely a naughty episode 69. But uh, if you're not into that kind of thing, then you know what? You could follow the show notes and listen to some cool live MJ tunes anyway. Now, just wanted to say also that very few questions were not included. Uh, some didn't meet our show guidelines and question quality. For example, how many nose jobs Michael had. So, Jamin and I chose not to include those. We apologize for, for that, those not being included uh, in this show. But Charles is happy to answer them separately anyway. Uh, so, uh, also to hear your opinions on his Q&A episode. So, hit him up on social media. Uh, over on Twitter, he can be reached at C.E. Thompson and Facebook search for Charles Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N for both of those, no P in the spelling, and he would love to hear from you. Yeah, he sure would. Um, thanks again, Charlie, for your time and putting so much work into this episode. It's deeply appreciated from both Q and I. So folks, sit back, relax, and enjoy this Q&A episode with Mr. Charles Thompson. The following is a presentation from the MJ cast the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's, that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the MJ Cast. This is Charles Thompson. I am flying solo this week. Jamin and Q are not here. 
they've actually been hospitalised with exhaustion after the social media reaction to the Joe Vogel and Ola Ray episodes. So they've left me at Mission Control. I thought Jamin was going to uh, join me on the line and record with me. I thought he was going to play Roz to my Frasier. But no, he has uh, buggered off to hospital. He's on a drip. So I'm here on my own, manning the controls. Uh, I don't really know what I'm doing. Uh, this week we're doing a Q&A episode whereby Jamin and Q have advertised via social networks, Facebook, Twitter, and something called Instagram, for our listeners to send in questions for me to answer. I'm reliably informed that there were more than 40 questions sent in altogether, which was the most ever for one of the MJ Cast's Q&A episodes. So what Jamin and Q have done for me is they've listed all the questions, they've collated them into a document on a hideous piece of computer software called uh, OneNote, which has been manufactured by Microsoft, who cheesed me off initially when they deleted MSN Messenger from existence. And uh, now, to add insult to injury, they've devised this new program called OneNote, which is really quite despicable. Anyway, so Jamin and Q have pasted all the questions into this OneNote document for me to answer. They've listed them in the order they were received, and they've told me who asked them and via which social media channel. I have not seen the questions unless you happened to tweet your question directly to me. So many of these questions I'll be seeing for the first time when I read them out and then answer them. Jamin and Q have asked me to thank you all for sending your questions in. I'm probably not going to get through all 41, um, I think that's safe to say, but what I'm going to do is if there are people that have sent in multiple questions, I'm going to answer maybe one or two and then I am going to move on to somebody else. If we get to the end of the 41 questions and uh, I've answered a few questions by everyone and I've still got time, I'll loop back, answer some more of the questions which have been sent in by people who have sort of machine gunned us with questions. Uh, so here it goes. Uh, first question is from Lachlan Bradbury via Facebook. Lachlan, you sent in seven questions. Uh, some of them have been censored by Q. In particular, your question about plastic surgery. I was happy to answer that, but I've been instructed not to. So Lachlan, five of your questions remain. I'm going to answer probably one or two, then move on to somebody else. But if uh, I get through a bunch of questions and I have time at the end, I'll come back and answer some more of yours. So your first question is, you've mentioned in the past your dissatisfaction with Invincible. Me? Really? Um, why do you think it's one of Jackson's weaker works, and what do you believe would have made it a stronger album? I think what would have made it a stronger album is if probably 14 of the 16 songs on the album had not been on there. In my opinion, the most damaging factor about the album was the reliance on digital technology. Here's the thing with technology, right? Technology is ever evolving. So what's cutting edge in 1999 can be obsolete by 2001. Michael spent a couple of years working on Invincible, largely with the producer Rodney Jerkins, who of course is known for his very digital sounding output and was known for it in the late 90s. He began working with Rodney in the late 90s and the product did not come out until the early noughties. And some of the songs on Invincible actually sounded dated before the album even came out. The ones that didn't sounded dated within a about a year or two. I'll give you an example. You Rock My World. I love the song You Rock My World. I think it's Michael's great, his last great dance song. The tempo is fantastic. It's joyous. It's upbeat. What a great song. But there's one element of the song that I don't, well, there's two elements. Of course, the hideous um, 
bizarre chit-chat at the beginning uh, just needs to go in the bin. But there's these synthesized strings that appear all the way through the song. Oh, man, those strings, they're hideous. They sound really, really terrible. They, at the time, I'm sure, they were the best and most expensive and most cutting-edge and most realistic-sounding synthesized strings that money could buy, because I'm sure that Michael would have demanded no less than that. But within a couple of years, they sounded ridiculous compared to what the new technology was able to do. They don't sound like strings. You can see that they're supposed to sound like strings, but they don't sound like strings. This is the problem with using technology. It's apparently the most expensive album ever made. Why why did you not just spend a couple of hundred dollars bringing a few people in to play some strings? Even if you only got them to play once through the song and then you just took the bit that you liked the best and then looped it and used it over and over again throughout the track, at least it would be real strings. So, you know, you have this bizarre situation where it's supposedly the most expensive album ever recorded and yet they apparently can't afford to bring somebody in to play some strings and they have to use fake strings, which just sound crap now. If you listen to that song, the strings just sound appalling. Anyway, so that was problem number one, the reliance on digital technology and sound. That's why Bad has so much worse than albums like Off The Wall and Thriller. If you listen to Off The Wall, it's a very organic, earthy-sounding album. It's just recorded with drums, bass, guitar, keys and horns, primarily. It's a very kind of basic album in that sense, but it's, it's also what's made it an enduring, timeless classic, because if somebody picks up a bass and drums and guitar and keys and horns today, they can recreate that album, and it will sound just as fresh as it did at the time it was recorded. I mean, if somebody wanted to go in a studio today and recreate Invincible, they'd have to dig through 15-year-old archives of computer programs just to try and find the sound effects that existed at the time, because they're so obsolete now that nobody would be using them. Now, the second problem with Invincible was it was way too long. Way too long, and of the songs that were included, the majority did not deserve to be on there. There's various reasons that could be. Of course, Michael, we now know through testimony in the AEG trial, was struggling with substance addiction at the time. There was even an incident around that time where he OD'd and a doctor had to be called out, so that would have been clearly affecting his work. We saw it affecting his work at Madison Square Gardens in September 2001, where David Guest wrote that he sat in the audience and cried at the first of the two 30th anniversary concerts because Michael was such a mess. There was uh, the fact that he was ill a lot, which he spoke about in interviews. His kids kept getting colds and then he was catching them. He even sounds on some of the songs like he has a cold. There's a song on that album where his vocal is just appalling. I think I think it's Heaven Can Wait. If you listen to the a cappella of Heaven Can Wait, he just sounds like really ill. Another problem with the album, I think, was probably the fact that he was already in a, a, a simmering dispute with Sony. It was not as full-blown as it became in 2002, but there were already grievances. I mean, the first grievance, of course, was aired in, I think, 1998 in the interview with the fanzine Black and White, where uh, Michael was speaking about Blood on the Dance Floor and how Sony had forced him to keep releasing remixes uh, even though he didn't like them because they said that the kids would love them and you see the uh, in the article the, the interviewer says no we don't, we don't love the remixes we'd prefer a proper B-side and Michael punches the air and says I knew it so that was the first kind of sign of tension with Sony and then you have this situation with Sony that's, that's simmering if you read Damien Schill's book Escape Origins there's quite a lot of detail in that book about Michael's annoyance with Sony and how 
how it was growing throughout the Invincible recording process. So it's possible that Michael actually deliberately released something which was not as good as it could have been because he didn't want to waste A-grade material on an album that he did not think was going to be given the promotion that it deserved. We know that there was material out there which was actually better and was not included on the album. So that would be a list of my kind of primary reasons why I think Invincible was not a great album. What would have made it stronger if it was shorter, if it was punchier, if the songs had been recorded with proper instruments, even if he just recorded the same songs but with proper instruments, a proper live band in the studio, it would have been ten times better. Unfortunately, he did not go down that route and the album dated terribly and the rest is history. Lachlan Bradbury, your second question is... Do you believe that the affiliation between Michael Jackson, his catalogue, his vault, etc., and Sony will ever come to an end, given the current state of Jackson's estate? What do you think would lead to Sony and the estate parting ways? What would lead to Sony and the estate parting ways is if John Branker was no longer anything to do with the estate. John Branker is a friend of Sony, he works for Sony, he clearly is never going to do anything to diddle Sony out of owning Michael Jackson in death, uh, even though he knows full well that Michael never wanted to work with Sony again. In terms of answering questions about the estate, I'm very, very happy to do that, but I'm mindful of the fact that there is going to be later this year, I don't know if this has been announced yet, but uh, there is going to be an MJ Cast Roundtable special with multiple guests discussing the performance of the Michael Jackson estate since Michael's death and where we think it needs to go and what happen- what needs to happen next. So anything which is probably going to double up with that discussion I'm going to skip over today purely because I've got so many questions to get through. So Lachlan, that was your second question. You've got three more questions on the list. I'm going to keep moving down. I'm going to move on to someone else now. But as I say, if I've got time at the end, I'll loop back and answer some more of your questions. So our next questioner was Debbie Longshore on Facebook. And Debbie asks, do you believe that the media's attitude to Michael is really softening over the years? My answer to that question would be probably not. I think the media's interest in Michael Jackson is softening. Of course, after Michael died, it was the biggest story in the world. I mean, his death and the aftermath was one of the biggest stories in the history of of celebrity journalism. After a while, I think interest began to tail off. And I think that's not just true of the media. I think it's true of the public. The reaction to the estate's posthumous projects has been muted. The reaction to books published about Michael since his death has been actually quite minimal. A lot of books that have come out have really not done much business at all. The only one I can remember that actually did particularly well in terms of sales was Jermaine's book. Jermaine's book went into the top five, I think, on the bestseller list. But, uh, you know, if you look at a lot of the biographies that have come out and stuff, they've just not sold well at all. I think the public probably felt a bit saturated by Michael Jackson. You know, after he died, it was Michael Jackson all day, every day for about a year. Where, you know, after he died, it was his music on the radio all day. For weeks afterwards, it seemed like all that was on TV was Michael. Then you had his memorial. Then you had the estate with wheeling out the exhibition immediately. You had the This Is It movie and soundtrack and the constant media saturation with the dancers going on every chat show under the sun and Kenny Ortega coming out 
on every chat show and chatting about it. It was just Michael all day, every day, it seemed, for an age. Then you had the posthumous album, you had all the controversy over the posthumous album, which I think people got sick of. And I think, you know, if you look at stuff that's come out that really should have, you know, in theory, done well from the estate, like the Bad 25 and the posthumous albums and stuff, they've really not done very well. So I think that the public interest in Michael has softened due to just kind of overkill and I think the media has probably realized that he is not a profitable target anymore. I think what's interesting is we're right in the middle of this uh, Hollywood sex scandal situation at the moment and almost nobody is talking about Michael Jackson at all. Now that is quite remarkable really given the years that were dedicated by the media to constantly trying to paint Michael Jackson as a a deviant and a, a sex criminal with all this Harvey Weinstein Kevin Spacey, Jeffrey Tambor, Brett Ratner is just one after the other. Louis C.K. Constant allegations against all kinds of people. Nobody is talking about Michael. The only person talking about Michael is Corey Feldman, and he's saying Michael was innocent. He's saying, I tried to report my abuse and my abusers years and years ago, and uh, the police wouldn't listen to me because all they were interested in was Michael Jackson. Nobody's come forward with allegations about Michael in the wake of all this Harvey Weinstein and stuff. So I think that's something that's uh, quite positive. That's probably a sign of of maybe changing attitude, but I'm I'm not sure it is a sign of changing attitude. Time will tell. I suspect it's more a sign of ambivalence. Debbie, your next question is, what is your honest belief in regards to Michael's death? Now, I assume that what you mean by that is, do I believe Michael was murdered? I know that I received some questions to that effect on the Twitter feed over the uh, last week or so when Jamin and Q were advertising the Q&A. I do not believe that Michael was murdered. I do not believe that there is any credible evidence at all that Michael was murdered. If evidence were brought forward, I would clearly change my opinion. But there is no evidence that I have ever seen which indicates in any way that Michael was murdered. I believe that Michael was killed by Conrad Murray in a a stupid accident. Conrad Murray was guilty of misconduct, of gross incompetence. He was a lazy, useless, lying, dishonest, cheap idiot of a doctor, and I, I believe that Michael's death was a tragic accident. Now, you may be alluding to the AEG case. In that case, I would say I do believe that AEG bears some responsibility. I did not agree with the way that the civil trial was conducted. I felt it was clear that AEG did have some price to pay there. And I'll give you one example of where I think that was the case. So there was an email that Randy Phillips sent. So Kenny Ortega was worried about Michael's health and he sent an email to Randy Phillips, the the CEO of AG Live where he was outlining his concerns about Michael's health and his ability to perform. And he actually said, I think Michael needs psychological help. Randy Phillips writes back and says of the Dr. Murray, he says, just leave it with Dr. Murray. We checked this guy out and he's fine. He doesn't need the money. 
Now, when he was questioned in the AEG civil suit brought by Catherine and Michael's children, Randy Phillips said that what he meant by that was that if a doctor needed money, if a doctor was in debt or something like that and he really needed the gig, then he might be open to being corrupted by Michael Jackson or by another client. That if a doctor was really needed the gig, then they might be persuaded to bend the rules in order to hang on to the job. Now, what we know is that although in that email, Randy Phillips says, we check everyone out and this guy is fine. He was alluding to the fact there that he'd done a background check on Conrad Murray, but in fact, he had not done a background check on Conrad Murray. So in his own evidence in the AEG trial, he admitted that there was a reason why AEG should have conducted a background check on Conrad Murray, because if the background check had discovered that Conrad Murray needed the money, then he would have been open to being corrupted, and that may have affected the care that Michael was likely to receive. Had AEG done the background check that it told its employees it had done, then it would have found that Conrad Murray did desperately need the gig, he was massively in debt, and therefore he was, as Randy Phillips had speculated might be the case, open to bending the rules and doing things he shouldn't have been doing. And that is how Conrad Murray came to be injecting Michael with propofol, the anesthetic, which it turned out Michael had had other doctors administer to him in the past. So clearly there, that is an admission by Randy Phillips that AEG should have conducted a background check because if a doctor needed the gig, then they would be open to corruption and they shouldn't be hired. Uh, and instead, the company should hire a doctor who did not need a gig and therefore would be inclined to tell Michael no if he asked for propofol. So that was just one example there of why I think AEG did bear some responsibility in Michael's death. So AEG, corporate responsibility, yes. Do I believe that anybody ordered Michael's death for any nefarious reason? No. There's no evidence of that. It's also extremely far-fetched. All the theories are extremely far-fetched. If they wanted to kill Michael for his catalogue, why didn't they kill him 15 years earlier in a far more credible way? Why? But, you know, you've got Michael in the early noughties. You've got Michael hanging around Neverland every day, dosed up to his eyeballs. There was um, evidence given by employees in the 2003 investigation by the Santa Barbara Police Department over Gavin Arvizo's allegations. They were interviewing people that worked at Neverland, and there were people saying, to the police, he literally would walk around the estate, the Neverland estate, like a zombie. His eyes would be rolling around in his head. His employees literally described this to the police. His eyes would be rolling back in his head and he would be talking gibberish because he was so high. Now, if you wanted to kill Michael Jackson with a drug overdose to steal his catalogue, why would you not do it then? Why would you wait until the whole world was looking at him when he was just on the cusp of a massive comeback, when he was just on the cusp of actually being able to make you some money in a legitimate way, why would you then kill him? Why would you not kill him during his period of hermit-like inactivity while he was already suffering from a catastrophic drug addiction and nobody would have batted an eyelid? So nothing about the, you know, there's people that think that the bridge collapsing at MJ and Friends was some sort of assassination attempt. I mean, what a, it just reminds me of A Fish Called Wanda, where Michael Palin is the inept hitman who's trying to kill the witness and he accidentally keeps killing her dogs instead. This theory that Michael was murdered depends on everybody involved in the murder plot being a complete imbecile. So no, I don't believe that Michael was murdered. I believe his death was a tragic and completely avoidable accident at the hands of 
a corrupt, useless imbecile of a doctor, and that AEG does bear some responsibility because their own CEO acknowledged under oath that AEG should have conducted a background check and even identified the reason why that background check should have been conducted and the reason that he identified was in fact present in the Michael Jackson case. Right, Debbie, you've asked a third question. Your question is, what are your thoughts in regards to John Branker and that will, along with the undervaluing of Michael's estate and the whole IRS thing? Now, I think it probably is not difficult for many of you to imagine what my views are on that, but this subject will be covered in the MJ cast estate roundtable special, which is coming later this year. I'm going to be on that episode, so I will answer that question more fully at the time. Our next questioner is Carly Swan on Facebook. And Carly asks, if MJ was still here with us and you had a chance to ask him a question, what would it be? My stock answer to that question is I always say to people I would ask him what the final ad lib is in They Don't Care About Us because I really think that is going to be a mystery which will never be solved. What question would I ask him? I think if I had a chance to talk to Michael, firstly, if I had 10 seconds to talk to Michael, uh, I would not ask him anything. I would just say thank you. Um, you know, I've lost in the last decade or just under a decade, I've lost a lot of my heroes and you know as you think about it and you think man what what would i have said if i got to meet them i always just come back to thank you if i got to if i got to um have a conversation with i did have a conversation with james brown actually but if i'd got to have another conversation <laughs> with james brown what would i have said i would have said thank you prince what would i have said i would have said thank you um if i had to ask michael one thing I, it's a difficult question to answer because when people asked Michael questions, he often did not really give a great answer. If you look back at interviews with Michael over the years, for instance, if people tried to ask him questions about his music, he would always just shut them down instantly with some kind of God Squad loony stuff about, oh, I didn't even write that song, God wrote the song and then gifted it to me through the ether or, you know, stuff like that. So it's interesting because in the Oprah interview, um, Oprah starts asking Michael about his skin and he says he's fed up with these questions and he if he had the, if he could go back in time and question Michelangelo he would question him about his art and why he made certain artistic decisions and what inspired him to make art artistic decisions he wouldn't be asking him all these personal questions and yet whenever an interviewer did try to do that with Michael whenever they did try to ask him artistic questions he always would just shut them down, immediately would just shut them down. He'd say things like, I can't take any credit for that. I can't take any credit because that was God. I didn't write the song, God wrote the song. The, the song already existed in space and I was the conduit through which it came. So he kind of uh, was a, a bit hypocritical there. He was constantly whinging that people didn't ask him the right questions. But then when they did ask him the right questions, he didn't bloody answer them. So what would I have asked Michael? Well, it's almost pointless. It's pointless asking him anything because he never gave an honest answer. Even with regard to the personal questions, he really often came out with a load of old codswallop. So I don't know. I, th I think I probably actually would just ask him what is the final ad lib and they don't care about us. And uh, I, I doubt if I would have got an answer. Our next questioner is Andrew Sly, who asked through Facebook, Charles, what is your favourite MJ book, author, and why? 
My favourite author on Michael Jackson is J. Randy Tarabarelli. Randy is actually a friend of mine, in addition to being a great author, a great investigator. He's just such a lovely person, so funny. He's incredibly funny, a really warm, lovely person, and I love seeing him whenever I can. And I really respect his approach to what he does. He started as a fan. I don't know if people, I don't know how much people know about J. Randy Tarabrelli. He started as a Diana Ross fan and actually as a child ended up working for Diana Ross, sort of running her fan club. And it was through Diana Ross and his relationship with her that he got involved with Motown and then that he got involved with Michael. And that was how he met Michael when Michael was a kid and Randy was a little bit older and they forged a friendship. And so Randy's career as an author actually came through genuine love. His early subjects were all people that he loved and that he was a huge fan of and that he followed and knew. Diana Ross, you know, he he became the the president of the Diana Ross fan club when he was about 10 or something and then um, ended up becoming the Diana Ross biographer and then writing a book about Motown and ultimately writing a book about Michael so you know I, I love that story and, and Randy has so many fantastic stories from his years involved with the Motown artists which would just give you a stitch laughing he's so funny and he's just a really lovely person and I talk to him a lot and I seek guidance and advice from him a lot in terms of how to approach certain subjects and how to approach an interview and what's the best way to uh, find something out and he's just a, a great friend and mentor to me when I was growing up in the fan community, I hated Randy Terabrelli, right, when I was a teenager. And it was not for any reason other than when I joined the fan community, everybody hated Randy Terabrelli. It was like dogma. So I just kind of assumed that he was bad and went along with it. And there were people always describing him as a hater and, you know, his book's rubbish and all this stuff. And then... um as I read the book, as I got older and read it, I thought it was incredibly objective. And then I, I'd look into the reasons why fans were complaining about it. And it would be things like, there's a section in the book where he says that Michael said, fuck that. And they go, Michael would never swear. How dare he say that Michael would swear? You know, and you're just going, you know, you're all idiots. Anyway, so I, I think it's an incredibly objective book. I respect the fact that it's such an, an objective book. I think he doesn't pander to the fans and he also doesn't pander to people that hate Michael Jackson. I think he takes an extremely level-headed approach to everything. And uh, as I say, he's a great friend and mentor to me as well. Andrew, your second question is, what are your top five Michael tunes and why have you chosen them? This is such a difficult question, Andrew. I'm really annoyed that you've asked me this. My number one favorite Michael Jackson song I always come back to is They Don't Care About Us. And if you want to know why, then listen to the episode that I did with Angela Candy earlier this year. I don't remember what the episode was called, but um, Angela and I were on the MJ cast together and I was asked all my favourites, my favourite album, favourite song, and I went into quite a lot of detail about why I love They Don't Care About Us so much. Now, the other songs I love are, I love some of the old Jackson 5 songs. In terms of the ones that I would return to again and again, see, some of Michael's adult output I'm kind of sick of. Like, every time I turn on the radio in the UK, they're either playing Bad, Beat It, or The Way You Make Me Feel. I'm just sick to death of listening to it. You know, they're great songs. I'm just sick of them. So in terms of what I listen to of Michael, like if I'm going to go and put a record on and listen to it, I tend to go for kind of more obscure stuff. So I often go back to his solo 
Motown music, like Music and Me, and With a Child's Heart. I love listening to that stuff. I think there's a real kind of such a beauty in his voice back then. And it is incredible the way he was able to emote in those tracks. Things like also uh, Who's Loving You, I go back and listen to. And even some of the really obscure, like Jackson 5 stuff, like If the Shoe Don't Fit and that kind of stuff, I listen to. I love listening to the Jackson's output. That's what you get for being polite. It's a beautiful song. Bless his soul. You know, all that kind of stuff. So, in, yeah, in terms of what I go back and listen to, if I'm feeling in a Michael mood, then I tend to gravitate towards that stuff, which I never would have done when I was younger. But I kind of feel like I've worn my adult Michael Jackson collection out in a way. Like I need to not listen to it for about five years before I can appreciate it properly again. So that's kind of a blanket reason rather than giving you an individual reason for each song. But yeah, go back and listen to the episode that I did with Angela because I speak in a lot of depth about why I love They Don't Care About Us so much. The next song I want to do is one of my favorites. It's another ballad, of course. And it was on one of my latest albums. It's my favorite.
This is Tito Jackson, and it's Tito time. Thanks for listening to the MJ cast. My next question comes from somebody called Q, who describes himself as co-host of the MJ cast. Um, presumably sent the question in from his hospital bed in between sponge baths. He says, what is a perfect day for Charles Thompson? Now, if I'm being completely honest, I've been run ragged this week. I've been at work every day. And then every day after work, I've had to go into London for an appointment of some description. And right now, my idea of a perfect day would be to wake up at about 1pm, then stay laying in bed until about 3pm, put on a dressing gown, go downstairs, sit in an armchair and read a book for a couple of hours, then probably cook myself about 30 Aunt Bessie's miniature Yorkshire puddings, put them in a bowl and eat them like popcorn while watching old episodes of Frasier. Now, if I was feeling less tired, my idea of a perfect day would probably be to go and do something cultural with my friends. Today I was out with uh, friends of the show, Angela Candy and Greg Spinks. We were all in London together. We went to the Prince exhibition at the O2. The other thing that I spend a lot of my time doing is going to concerts and shows up in London. I like going to plays and musicals. Going to see Dreamgirls soon with my friend Angela, who I was out with today. Dreamgirls is amazing. If there's anyone in London, you've got a week you got a week until Amber Riley leaves Dreamgirls. If you're going to go and see it, make sure you go while Amber's there. She's phenomenal. So yeah, that's kind of what I like to do. I like to read. I like to watch TV. I like to go to plays and musicals and films. I go to London Film Festival every year. I'm kind of a movie geek. I love going to concerts, but all my favorite artists are either dead or retired, pretty much. And the other thing I like to do is travel, but you can't really do that in a day. Anyway, so that's a general overview of what I enjoy doing in my spare time. The next question comes from somebody called Geometer. I suspect a pseudonym. Uh, he says, Mr. Thompson, what impression did you get when you first saw MJ appear at the conference to announce this is it? When I first saw it, I thought, this is not MJ, this is an impersonator. And in my view, this was the first time his I love you sounded dishonest. This is a really interesting question. I was at the O2, I was actually in the press section, and I was there through my affiliation with a fan site. They put the fan site people into the press pen, and so we all got booed. Uh, as we walked in, all of Michael's fans started booing the press. Uh, I spoke about this, I was actually quoted in Randy Tarabarelli's book. They held all the press in a place called the Indigo 2, which is a little night... Well, it's not that little. It's a nightclub inside the O2 building. It's where Prince played all of his aftershows. When Prince did his 21 nights at the O2, he would often come off the stage for about an hour, then reappear in uh, the Indigo 2, the nightclub, for about a thousand fans and play a whole second gig. On the, the last night of the run, he did something like a three-hour concert at the O2 in the arena, came off stage, and then did four hours at the Indigo 2, which is just phenomenal. He was performing with Amy Winehouse and Beverly Knight and all kinds of people. Anyway, so they held all the press on the day of the Michael Jackson This Is It announcement. They held all the press in the Indigo 2 and 
I was with a, another guy from a fan site. We were hanging out, and this girl came over and started talking to us. And she was a member of the press, but she was really excited. She was a young black girl, and she was saying, "Oh my God, I've been a Michael Jackson fan my whole life." I can't believe through my work I'm finally going to get to see him in the flesh. So they take us all out into the uh, into the foyer to watch the announcement and we all get booed by the fans because we've come out with you know into the press section and you know Michael told all his fans the, that the press were evil. Of course, you know the press were all there to basically give Michael a million acres of free newsprint advertising for his concert run, but whatever. Anyway, they all started booing, and then um, this girl who we'd been talking to in the in the pre in the the press holding area in the Indigo 2, the one who was a Michael Jackson fan, some of the fans started shouting at her that she was a bitch, and she actually cried. She stood in the press pen and she cried, and I really felt ashamed that day to be a Michael Jackson fan, to be honest. It was one of the only times I've ever felt that, but it was... It was very sad. Anyway, Michael kind of didn't materialize for a long time. They held us in the Indigo 2 for ages past when he was supposed to be on stage. People kept asking the organizers what was going on, and they just weren't telling us anything. People were getting really antsy. They had deadlines to meet. They had live broadcasts that they were supposed to be getting ready for, and now the time kept changing. They eventually lead us out. We go into the O2 foyer, like the atrium-looking area, when you first enter the O2, and they kept us there for an absolute age, Dermot O'Leary kept popping up on the stage and sort of apologetically saying, he is coming, we promise. Then finally, they go, Michael Jackson is in the building. I think it was Dermot O'Leary who said it. Michael is in the building. And they cut to that shot of Michael uh, climbing off of the bus. And the whole place goes bananas. And then he says, right, he's on his way now. And then we just wait and wait and wait and again it seemed like an eight on tv they edited it and on the uh when they put the footage up on the uh this is it website they edited it to make it look like it happened right away but it didn't a long wait between us seeing michael get off that bus and him finally appearing on the stage now when he appeared on the stage it was very exciting because the fans were going absolutely berserk I mean, it was a cacophony of noise. I actually rang my friend James and, and put the phone on and just said, can you hear this, and held it up in the air. It was really loud. But after that kind of, you know, after you got used to that, there was something that didn't feel right. There was some kind of excitement that you thought you should have felt that just was not there and afterwards some of the fan science and press people were invited to come and do some interviews and we thought well maybe michael will be there it is a press conference after all so we went upstairs to some sort of vip bar thing and we were actually sat right next to Demo o'leary but we didn't talk to him and eventually it became clear that nothing was happening so we just left and uh, and i went off and met some of my friends I'm trying to remember. One of them was Sil Mortilla, Peter Mills, uh, who was there with his then-girlfriend. We met up with our friend Kent, I think, with our friend Daniel, with Amanda. And we were all sat at a table in a restaurant called Chiquito's. First and last time I've been to Chiquito's as I nearly choked to death on their extremely spicy steak. And there was kind of a muted atmosphere around the dinner table. And eventually Amanda, and Amanda is like one of the most positive... Michael Jackson fans I've ever met. I mean, she's totally like, no, no, no. He's, you know, he he looked really great at the Virgin Megastore signing. I mean, she's like, you know, mm. anyway. So she's like super positive, like sunshine, lollipops, rainbows, and moonbeams fan. And she she just said she just said it into the silence. She just went, 
something didn't seem right with him today. And it was like a cloud had lifted over the table and everyone said, I'm so glad you've said that because we all, everyone felt it. Everyone felt that something was wrong. I don't believe it was an impersonator. By the way, I don't believe it was an impersonator. But um, it was clear that something was wrong. Of course, we now know, we now know, again, through the AEG civil suit brought by Catherine and Michael's children, through the emails that were released into evidence in that trial, we know that not long before Michael appeared on that stage, he had been slapped, screamed at, and thrown in a shower by Randy Phillips. We know that Michael was trying to get out of coming to the press conference. And by the way, just uh, just as an aside, everybody always whinges about Randy Tarabarelli, right? And one of the things that I remember is that Randy Tarabarelli was the first person to report this. He reported this in his edition of, of uh, his Michael biography in 2010, I think. He reported that they were pleading with Michael through the door to get ready, and Michael was refusing to come and that he didn't want to go. Of course, all the fans are going, oh, typical Randy Tarabarelli, made it all up, tabloid really, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, years later, the AEG trial happens, and it turns out it's all true. And uh, Randy Phillips actually smashed his way in there and sort of gave Michael a, a piece of his mind and a piece of his fist. So, you know, it's, it's now understandable why Michael did not seem right at that press conference. And I spoke about, again, on the, on the episode that I did with Angela, I spoke about how the last time... People say, when was the last time you saw Michael? And I always think of the World Music Awards. I always forget that I was at the This Is It announcement. And the reason I forget is because he didn't seem like Michael at that announcement. It was Mike. I'm not saying it was not it was clearly was not an impersonator, but he it was like I met a fan once. The only time I ever went to Michael's hotel because uh, seriously, hanging outside Michael's hotel was one of the most boring, pointless things I've ever done in my life. So I went one day and I never did it again. But I was speaking to a fan there who had been at the trial. This was at the Dorchester in late 2005, and they said that as the trial went on, they were there every day watching Michael arrive and go into the courthouse and then come out again at the end of the day. And they said it was like the shell of Michael Jackson was there or, or the, the body of Michael Jackson was there, but the, the spirit was dead. Now, when I saw him at the World Music Awards in 2006, I didn't feel like that. I felt like he had that energy about him and he seemed excited and happy and kind of joyous and like he was enjoying the moment and he was enjoying the adulation and shop and so on but when i saw him at the o2 i knew what that lady had been talking about when i spoke to her outside the dorchester i knew what she had meant then because i was feeling the same thing michael was stood there in front of me and yet the excitement that i should have felt just did not it just was not there i just had a sense of doom I had a real sense of doom about those concerts from the moment they were announced. Now, I'm not saying I thought he was going to die. I absolutely did not even imagine that he was going to die. What I thought was going to happen was he was going to pull out. I thought he was going to try and find some way to get out of doing those concerts. You know, there was precedent there. He, you know, that he um, announced the Millennium Concerts with Marcel Avram. He pulled out, ended up getting sued and having to settle. He did the the Bahrain two seas thing with uh, the prince and then bailed and got sued and settled. 
there was the tour to raise money for AIDS that he announced in 2004 that didn't happen. There was the Hurricane Katrina single that didn't happen. He just had a a reputation by that time of being somebody who announced things and then pulled out. He had a, a reputation for being a bit flaky. So I remember when the tickets went on sale and I was booking and I was saying to my friends who I was booking with, I'm not booking through anyone that is not going to guarantee us a refund. There's no way I'm buying a ticket on eBay because if if the if the concert gets cancelled, we're screwed. So I said we have to buy all of our tickets through somebody that is going to guarantee us a refund. Um, and it was not because I thought he was going to drop dead. It was because I thought he was going to try and find some way of pulling out, saying his signature was forged on the contract or, you know, something was going to happen, like the HBO thing. And it's interesting also because uh, I was with Angela in Cologne a couple of years ago when Brad Sundberg did a four-day seminar in Cologne in the studio where Michael recorded Blood on the Dance Floor and the guests for those four days were Brad Boxer and Michael Prince. And Michael Prince said at that seminar in Cologne that the first thing that entered his head on June 25th 2009 when somebody told him that Michael had been rushed to hospital was he thought it was a stunt. He thought it was Michael trying to get out of opening night or trying to buy himself some time or extra rehearsal time or something. He said it's quite a common trick in the entertainment industry. He said whenever you read that an artist has been hospitalized with exhaustion like Jamin and Q that generally it's some sort of ruse. It's because they're trying to get out of something or they've realised that their show is in chaos and they need more rehearsal time or something. I mean, honestly, I was talking to Randy Tarabarelli about this earlier this year. It's like, how exhausted do you have to be that you need to go to hospital? Do you know what I mean? I mean, I've felt like really exhausted in my life before. I've never needed to go to a hospital. It's kind of a bullshitty reason to go to a hospital, quite honestly. If you're exhausted, just go to bed. But, um, <laughs> so Michael Prince, he, he you know, his first thought when he heard that Michael had been rushed to hospital was that it was some sort of ruse to try and get out of doing these shows. And that was my first thought on June 25th, 2009. When I heard my friend rang me and said, what's going on with Michael? I said, what are you talking about? He said, look at the news. So I went on Google News and saw Michael rushed to hospital and I thought, oh, here we go. This is why I bought all my tickets through refund places, you know, because I, I knew something like this would happen. I, I assumed this was Michael's way of getting out of the shows. Of course, as the day went on, it became clear that that was not what was happening. The same as with Michael Prince. He soon realized that this was not what he thought it was. So I had a sense of doom about those concerts because I felt that what would probably happen was Michael would try to pull out and then that AEG would sue him. He maybe would lose the catalogue. He maybe would end up bankrupt. I was foreseeing real bad stuff happening. I was not foreseeing Michael dying. But there was it was interesting because we were a group of fans that knew each other but were all of quite different mindsets, especially Amanda, who was a very positive person and she was the first person to say there was something about him today that was not right and I'm worried and everybody around the table just let out a sigh and just said I'm glad you said that because I feel the same way so in answer to your question Geometer my first impression when I saw Michael appear at the conference was one of excitement because the whole crowd was in a hysterical sort of collective wig out. But by the time it finished, I just felt concerned and slightly, not disappointed, but deflated. But no, I don't believe it was an impersonator. Geometer's next question through Facebook was, Mr. Thompson, 
why do you think Conrad Murray still walks this earth unharmed? Well, I'm not a believer in capital punishment, and I'm not a believer in vigilantism. So I'm glad that uh, Conrad Murray still walks the earth unharmed. I think he's a despicable person. I think that his sentence was too short. I think that his misconduct and his incompetence and the dangerous way in which he treated Michael merited severe punishment. He was extremely slipshod. He was cheap. Michael basically died because Conrad Murray was cheap. That's what happened. Conrad Murray bought the cheapest pulse oximeter he could possibly find. Pulse oximeter is a little device that they attach to your finger and it measures the oxygen in your blood. I don't really know how it works. But he bought one that did not raise an alarm if the levels dropped to what would be considered dangerous. And they showed in court that the difference between buying or leasing a pulse oximeter, which actually would have raised the alarm and immediately told Conrad Murray that something was wrong, so Michael could have been saved. Now, the difference between the one that he bought and the one that would have saved Michael's life was minuscule. It was, you're talking a couple of dollars, it was nothing. So he, um, you know, his cheapness and his laziness and his slipshod, dangerous approach to his job resulted in a man's death and completely avoidable, tragic death, and one which had uh, massive consequences for many, many people all over the world. And he did deserve a more lengthy prison sentence, in my opinion, and probably a more severe charge than the one that he was uh, charged with. But as far as why he still walks the earth unharmed, I think that is evidence of a civilized society. Vigilantism is wrong. Capital punishment is wrong. He should not be harmed. I would not condone anybody harming him. He deserved a, a, a more severe sentence, but he did not deserve to be physically harmed because that is not the way in which civilized people conduct themselves. Our next question comes from Ryan Michaels, who is the host of the Reason Bound podcast, which the MJ cast, of course, simulcast this year uh, for Vindication Day. Ryan asks, Mr. Tom, why is he, why is he calling me Mr. Thompson? Yeah, Mr. Thompson, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being horrible and 10 being magnificent, would you give the performance of Blood on the Dance Floor, where Michael lays down on the stage, <laughs> a 9 or a 10? <laughs> so uh, Ryan and I know each other from way back on a, a forum where Sam Habib from the MJAP used to be a member and uh, Silmore Tiller, Peter Mills used to be a member. It was a, a busy forum and it was full of um, great people who are still friends of mine and good friends of mine to this day. And back then there was, uh, it was kind of, uh, the forum was called MJ Star. It was kind of the renegade. It was like the renegade forum because there's a huge problem. I don't know whether it's just with the Michael fan community or whether it's with all fan communities, because I've never really been as involved with any other fan community as I am with Michael's. But certainly in Michael's fan community, there is a huge problem with censorship and this kind of like insistence upon everybody having to subscribe to a, a kind of a deluded fantasy version of the world. So for instance, in a you have to exist in a world where if a tabloid says something about Michael that's true, then you all have to pretend that it's false. And if anybody says that it's true, then they get banned from the message board, even if it is demonstrably true. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and uh, 
MJ Star was the kind of the antithesis to that. It was the forum that everybody went to when they were sick of being censored because it would allow you to express frustration and annoyance at things that Michael had done and to tell the truth. You know, if, uh, if you went on certain forums and said Michael wore a wig, they would ban you. He did wear a wig. They would literally ban you for telling the truth. It was just ridiculous. You know, and it's not like people were starting a thread called, oh my god, how disgusting, Michael wears a wig. It was just people mentioning in part, they'd just say, I didn't like his wig on that day, but I thought the one he wore a week later was great. And they'd get banned for saying it was a wig, even though it was a wig. Um, anyway, so people would go to MJ Star because it was kind of a like the level-headed forum where you could go and actually tell the truth and tell it like it was and discuss the positives and the negatives of what was going on in Michael's world. And there were a lot of negatives at that time. We're talking the mid to late noughties. You know, we're talking the period of where Michael was in the wilderness, nothing was happening. The only time he'd end up in the news was because he'd gone shopping with 37 band-aids stuck all over his face and a tablecloth wrapped around his head or something. You know, this was not a great time to be a Michael Jackson fan. And uh, Sam Habib was uh, a member of that forum as well. And we would talk a lot about the history tour because there were some people on the, you know, we had, it still had its fair share of kind of Looney Tune deluded fans who would insist that, you know, Invincible was the greatest album in the history of recorded music and that the history tour was not lip synced. And Sam, I'm sure it was Sam who said that it, almost like the most audacious piss take in the history of live music was Michael's lip synced performances of Blood on the Dance Floor on the history tour where he literally would actually just lay down on the stage while the pre-recorded vocal to Blood on the Dance Floor played over the speaker system. <laughs> he was saying what a kind of the audacity, you know, of charging people for a concert ticket and then just playing a CD and laying down on the stage and doing nothing. <laughs> so uh, that's what Ryan's referring to. Of course, uh, the performances of Blood on the Dance Floor on the History Tour, which were lip-synced, I would give not, not many out of ten certainly not a 9 or a 10. It's no secret that I'm not a fan of the the history tour. I do think that all footage of that tour should be burned and that the ashes should be encased in a block of concrete, sailed out to the middle of the sea and thrown overboard. So that's my answer to Ryan Michaels. Our next question comes from at Michael Joseph Music on something called Instagram. Uh, he says, Charles, don't you think it's better to look at everything Michael did, at least as an artist, positively? No. Um, I mean, I don't really understand the question. Why, why, why would it be better to pretend that something's good if it's not? I just don't understand that. I'm really, I'm all about truth, right? I just... What is the point? What's the what is the point of pretending that something's amazing if it's not amazing? What is the point of pretending that the history tour is just as good as the bad tour? What is the point of that? It just makes you look insane. It makes you look completely and utterly insane. I was talking about this again. <laughs> I keep referring back to it. I was talking about this on the episode that I did with um, with Angela uh, a few months ago. Uh, I was saying that you know Michael's fan base often has to come to his defense. He's attacked a lot by the media and by people in the media. And it's, it's almost like a job being a Michael Jackson fan because you constantly have to be ready to respond to some sort of emergency situation and come out and defend him and uh, tell the truth and sort of throw yourself into the gladiatorial 
environment that is the the public debate in these days on social media and stuff and there's no point in doing that if you're not going to be able to be taken seriously once you insert yourself into the debate there's no point inserting yourself into a debate if you're going to be immediately discreditable and you're immediately discreditable if you start trying to claim that the history tour is amazing because it's not amazing michael by his own admission really did not want to do it you know that from the private home movies you know that from the diane sawyer interview where she asks him if he's looking forward to going back on tour and he refuses to answer and we know it through testimony in uh, some of the legal events that have occurred since Michael's death that he did not want to tour he was drugged to get him on stage and so on and so forth so what is the point what's the point of pretending that Michael Jackson in 1997 being forced on stage against his will and lip-syncing is as good as Michael Jackson enthusiastically performing live in the in the mid to late 1980s what's the point of doing that it just discredits you immediately so no I don't think that you should look at everything Michael did positively because not everything Michael did was positive. You know, look at the first night of Madison Square Gardens, 2001. David Guest, the producer, wrote in his autobiography that he sat in the audience and cried because Michael's performance was so bad. Michael uh, took something before the show showed up hours late. When he got there, he was so out of it that he had to be force-fed sugary drinks and snacks just to wake him up. And then he performed most of the concert bent over double with his hand over his face because there was also something wrong with his lip. I think he went and had a bunch of Botox done or something to try and, you know, make himself look good for the cameras. And it had a, a negative reaction and all his, his lips swelled up and went red. And in the TV broadcast, it's actually digitally blurred and you can see it's digitally blurred if you pause it in the right places. So what's the point in pretending that that was a great show? What's the point? All it does is make you look mad. And you don't want to look mad. Because if you look mad, then you can't credibly defend Michael Jackson when he needs you to defend him. You can't credibly defend Michael against charges of child abuse when you've discredited yourself by pretending that something which is objectively terrible is fantastic. So that would be my answer. No. I don't believe it's best to look at everything positively because it's not reasonable, it's not credible, and it undermines you in the long run. Our next questioner is L. Josephine, aka Lee Josephine, on Twitter. She says, What do you think are some of the most cringeworthy things and decisions that Michael made in his later years? Well, to be honest, uh, I've spoken about this before. I think it was on the episode I did with Sam Habib about how during the invincible years, the trial years and the post-trial years as a Michael Jackson fan, it really was a very difficult time to be a Michael Jackson fan. It was not cool to be a Michael Jackson fan. He was not an aspirational figure anymore. He really was uh, regarded as a figure of ridicule, a punchline, somebody that was insane. He seemed to stumble from one catastrophe to another, from one cringeworthy moment to another. I mean, the, the Bashir documentary was incredibly cringeworthy. The dancing on top of the truck at the trial was a very, very bad decision. The Ed Bradley interview that he did after the Bashir documentary was extremely cringeworthy. The allegations of police brutality were not credible. 
were very, very cringeworthy. And then there were the things that he would do in, you know, the post-trial years, like he would go out in public with tons of band-aids stuck all over his face. You know, that why would you do that? All, the, all that time he went out in a wheelchair in his pyjamas with a big blanket over his head or something. He did a lot of very cringeworthy things. I kind of feel that it was indicative of Michael Jackson almost it's almost indicative of like a depression when people get depressed they kind of stop caring about everything you know it's like what's the point of getting out of bed what's the point of getting dressed what's the point of anything and when you see Michael Jackson imagine this is what I think imagine Michael Jackson in the bad era uh, being wheeled around in his pajamas in front of the cameras it he would never, ever have allowed that to happen. He would not have allowed that to happen. So it's almost like you're looking at two different people. You're looking at Michael Jackson at the height of his career, who was the consummate performer and showman and understood the entertainment industry and understood the press and really was extremely diligent about the way that he was presented to the world. And then by the time you get to Michael in the last decade of his life, it's like he just doesn't care. I mean, even you look at him in some of the pictures in the Invincible era and he would be out in his pajamas. He would have his hair would be all sticking up all over the place. I mean, he really would look terrible in some photographs. And you just think the Michael Jackson of the 80s would never have allowed this to happen. He would never have allowed that photograph to be taken. So a lot of the things that he did, which were cringeworthy. And at the time you were going, oh, Michael, you know, what, you know, why, 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 why? Why have you gone shopping with plasters stuck all over your face? Why the fuck would you do that? Why would you do that? But then you look back and it probably, now that I think about it in hindsight, was indicative, I think, of a depression. This was somebody who just did not care anymore. Somebody whose spirit had been broken and who just thought, do you know what? What is the point? What is the point? What is the point of getting dressed up? I could get dressed up to the nines. They're still going to take the piss out of me. I could get dressed up to the nines. The story tomorrow is still going to say in the second line, Jacko, who last year avoided jail after a trial on child sex charges. You know, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I spend six hours getting ready and I look better than I've ever looked in my life. The story is going to say a year after beating his child sex rat. Jacko, blah, blah, blah. So it was just like he just did not care anymore. So at the time you were resentful and um, irritated by it. But now that I look back, I just find it terribly, terribly sad. You know, the Michael Jackson of the bad era, of the thriller era, would not have allowed himself to be photographed in public with plasters all over his face, would not have allowed himself to be photographed in public wearing a blue surgical hairnet. He would not have allowed it to happen. And I just think this is indicative of somebody who really did not care anymore and just thought, what is the point? And to me, that's just really desperately, desperately sad. Next question comes from Elaine Holloway aka at lovemj829 on Twitter. She says, Do you think MJ's mother had a case against AEG? 
If so, why didn't she win against them? Okay, I explained earlier that I do think uh, there was a case against AG. Just to recap, Randy Phillips wrote in an email, we have checked the doctor out and he doesn't need the gig. That was an admission that if a doctor had a financial dependency on the job, then they would be likely, or more likely at least, to be open to uh, bribes or to doing something that they shouldn't be doing. This would have impacted on the level of care that Michael was likely to receive. A doctor who has a reason to bend the rules, i.e., he can't afford to lose the job, so he's going to do whatever the patient asks him to do. That is a danger, especially when you place them in proximity to somebody like Michael who had recurring problems with substance abuse. Randy Phillips acknowledges this in an email and says, we have checked the doctor out and he doesn't need the gig. He's acknowledging that AG has a duty to carry out a background check on the doctor and to make sure that he is not corruptible. Now the problem is he's lying. He has not checked the doctor out. He's telling them that they've checked the doctor out. It turns out he has not checked the doctor out. This is a lie. He should have conducted a background check by his own admission and yet did not. So that, in my opinion, means that AG was at least partially culpable for Michael's death because had they checked the doctor out, had they discovered that he had a massive financial reason to compromise his ethics, then perhaps they would have insisted that he be got rid of. That clearly is the implication of Randy Phillips's email that he sent to Kenny Ortega. So yes, I do believe that AEG had some role to play in protecting Michael, and therefore had some culpability in his death. Now, why didn't Catherine win? Well, because the judge wrote the path to verdict in such a way that they could not win. Path to verdict is a list of questions that the judge gives the jurors, and the jurors answer those questions almost like a, a little diagram. Like, you know, like when you're in a, you're looking at a magazine and it says, are you a dating disaster? And then it has like little boxes with arrows coming off of them. And if you answered yes to this question, then answer this question next. Well, that's kind of what a path to verdict is. The judge gives the, the jury a list of questions, and if they answer yes to each question, then they move on to the next question. Now, in my opinion, Randy Phillips' email clearly demonstrates negligent hiring of the doctor because he acknowledges in his email that they should have done a background check and yet it turns out they didn't do a background check and the very reason that Randy Phillips says that one should have been done turns out to exist. Now, the way the judge wrote the path to verdict was that if the jury found that the doctor was competent at the time that AEG hired him, then the, the jurors could not find that he had been negligently hired. So basically, the way the question was set up was that if they found that Dr. Conrad Murray was a doctor, then the Jacksons couldn't win. That was literally the way the judge constructed the path to verdict. If they found that the doctor was a doctor, then that meant that he was not negligently hired. It was ludicrous. By the definition that was set out, in the judge's questions, Dr. Harold Shipman would be considered a competent doctor. So that was why Catherine and the kids did not win. You've said, did mother, did MJ's mother have a case? Of course, we must remember the media tried to spin it that it was just Catherine's case. It was Catherine and the kids. That lawsuit was filed on behalf of Catherine, Prince, Paris, and Blanket. So that's my answer to your question, Elaine. Your next question, do I think Michael was murdered by Sony, and if not, 
who. I don't believe Michael was murdered by anybody. There is no credible evidence whatsoever that Michael was murdered by anybody. Show me some evidence, maybe I'll change my mind. The story that was presented by the prosecution in the Conrad Murray trial was compelling. It was backed by evidence. There was no evidence to suggest that Michael was murdered by anybody. No, I don't believe he was murdered by Sony. I don't believe that he was murdered by AG. I don't believe he was murdered by anybody. I believe that Conrad Murray could have faced a more severe charge, but I don't believe he was working for anybody. I think he was just an imbecile. Dr. Murray had no motive to kill Michael deliberately. There's no evidence that he was paid by anybody at all. So no, I don't believe that Michael was murdered. Bruce Aguilar, aka Yensid98, that's Y-E-N-S-I-D-98 on Twitter, says, What is your least favourite MJ song from each of his solo albums? Okay, well that's an interesting question. I'm going to assume, for the purposes of answering your question, that you're only referring to the adult solo albums and not the early Motown solo albums. For Off The Wall, I would say probably my least favourite song is She's Out Of My Life, actually. A lot of people would say Girlfriend. Girlfriend's kind of a corny song, but for me, She's Out Of My Life is kind of boring and also not believable. The the whole section where Michael starts pretending to cry at the end I just find quite cringeworthy and kind of not believable at all. So that would be my least favourite from Off The Wall. On Thriller, I guess I would have to say... Oh man, that's a really awful question for, uh, for Thriller. I'm actually going to say Beat It which is probably going to be really controversial, but I just, I'm so sick of it. That's that's my reason. They play that song on the radio here all the time, and I'm just so fed up with listening to it. On Bad, I am going to go with I Just Can't Stop Loving You. The only redeeming feature of that song is that Michael did not record it with Barbara Streisand as originally intended, because that it would seem an impossibility, but that would have actually made it worse. I remember when I went to see Thriller Live in the West End, which was years ago, I've got to say it was years ago, right? So maybe it's good now. I saw it years ago and I could not bear it. And it was kind of like an ordeal having to sit through it, sit through all these kind of 19-year-olds doing awful, like, hip-hop dancing, all, like, catastrophic renditions of Michael Jackson songs filled with Ws where they shouldn't, you know, you know that kind of Las Vegas terrible nightclub singing where they just put a W in every word. Like, well, I'm just crashed up loving you. It's just terrible. Anyway, so then they start singing it. The, the, the opening notes of I Just Can't Stop Loving You come on and I was just like, oh, shit. Like, just when I thought the show could not get any worse. It, is, it feels like it's about 25 minutes long. Again, there's nothing about this song which is in any way credible, especially the opening bit where Michael's going on about, you're so sweet, I just want to lie next to you. and all. I mean, oh, cringe, cringe, cringe. No, terrible. Get rid of it. They should have put Streetwalker on instead. 
there's a few tracks on Dangerous that I would get rid of. To be honest, I think you could easily get rid of three or four tracks from Dangerous and not lose anything important. Of course, the first thing which should go is Heal the World. What a terrible, terrible, hideous waste of a song. It's, I mean, it's, you know, the sentiment is very sweet. Okay, I'll give Michael credit for that. His intentions were good. I will accept that his intentions were good. But it's so kind of kindergarten, on the nose, heal the world. I mean, I've said it before, it's like recording a song called Eat Your Vegetables. It's just so kind of, like, it's not even worth saying. Bless him. I, I, I understand that it came from a lovely place and... Michael's head must have been a, 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 a utopia. But, no, that song needs to go. The next one to go would have been Black or White. It's it's scraped through purely by virtue of not being Heal the World, but that would have been next on the list for the boot. History is easy. Come Together. I mean, You Are Not Alone is really dismal, but Come Together, what was the point of including... what? Just what was the point? It was recorded in about 1987. What was the point? Blood on the Dance Floor, again, easy. Every single remix, get rid of them all. I despise them all equally. Michael didn't want them on the album. He told us that in his interview with Black and White magazine. Sony forced him to release the remixes against his will. They told him that the kids would love them. The fans didn't want them. The kids didn't want them. Michael was right. He should have included new material instead. And, um... Boo. Boo to Sony. You suck. Uh, In Michael's words, Sony sucks. Don't give us remixes. Michael didn't like them. Stop including remixes on posthumous releases. Stop remixing his songs on the posthumous albums before you release them. Stop it. Remixes are shit. Stop it. Stop it. Jamin and Q, stop putting them in the show. Stop it. Stop with the remixes. Please, stop. Get rid of them all. It should have been an EP with five songs, or it should have been an album of all new songs, as Michael wanted. No remixes. Death to remixes. I shit on the chest of remixes. Fuck remixes. Right, Invincible. Now, where to start with Invincible? Where to start? Quite honestly, what was your name? Bruce. Quite honestly, Bruce. I mean, (sighs) you could get rid of... 13 songs from Invincible, and I wouldn't give a monkey's. There, I mean, where to even... I mean, it's got to be The Lost Children, hasn't it, actually? It's got to be The Lost Children, because just what on earth was he thinking? With Michael's reputation and his image being what it was at the time, and just anything involving Michael Jackson and kids being an immediate punchline, why he ever thought that releasing... The Lost Children, as a song, would be a good idea. I mean, this is a perfect example of Michael not being of sound mind during the recording and releasing of this album. It should never have been allowed to happen. It was a a PR disaster waiting to happen. And it's kind of good that the album sank into obscurity and almost nobody knows that that song exists because it's just so embarrassing. Next would probably have been 2000 Watts. So thank you, Bruce, for that question. Jamin Ball, who describes himself as a presenter on the MJ cast, says, Talk to us about what you do for a living. What have you been most proud of in your line of work as an investigative journalist? Blimey. Well, as an investigative journalist, right. So last year, I won 
well, last year, acro- across the um, the end of last year and the beginning of this year, I won a couple of national awards in Britain, journalism awards. And those were for an investigation that I've been working on for over three years now, where I've been investigating historic child sex abuse, in particular a historic paedophile ring in the UK. So it all started with me investigating uh, local government I discovered in the accounts which had been published by local government through Freedom of Information that they had been paying compensation payments for historic alleged sexual abuse. I started asking questions of the local government about those payments and they refused to answer any questions, even basic questions, like really, really basic questions. Uh, They claimed that answering these questions could have identified the victims, which is plainly nonsense. And we recruited child abuse charities and uh, other campaign groups and pressure groups like the Taxpayers Alliance. And we ran a campaign. I say we, I'm talking about the newspaper where I work. We ran a campaign for transparency over these payments, which of course are being paid with taxpayers' money because it's government that's paying these compensation payments. So the the public has a right to know what this money's being spent on. They refused to answer any questions at all, even after we got all those groups and charities to support us. So we ran all these front page stories about how the council was refusing to um, answer questions about these abuse payments and we start getting whistleblowers coming through the door asking for Charles Thompson because my name was on the stories and these whistleblowers just start telling us this incredible story of all these kids all these boys and a couple of girls who were abused by a particular group of adults in a particular location back in the 80s and the early 90s and how the police investigated but the investigation was kind of um, surface level and they went after two men and all the rest of the abusers were never pursued. The police never bothered speaking to most of the victims. They kind of went, oh, well, we've spoken to a couple. That'll do. That'll get us a conviction. We don't need to do any more work. And the guys got off with really light prison sentences. You had all of these child victims who got no support because they were not treated by the police as victims. They weren't interviewed. And many of them went on to become criminals or to try to commit suicide. One of them did commit suicide. Some of them became child prostitutes Uh, at least one of them went on to abuse children themselves and it was just a major establishment fuck up and our investigation into this historic fuck up proved so powerful that the police actually had to reopen their investigation and new victims came forward and somebody was arrested and then um i won a couple of awards for it so as an investigative journalist which was your question jamin that is what i am most proud of i would say you know i've i've done various bits of investigative work over the years Uh, i mean even my um James Brown piece, which kind of was the the first big thing that I wrote that kind of made me a bit of a name. My investigation into James Brown's final album, that was very investigative. I had to interview probably close to 20 people to put that together. But um, in terms of investigative, proper investigative journalism, it has to be my ongoing investigation into this historic paedophile ring. If you go on my website, charles-thompson.net, you can get quite an in-depth bunch of information by clicking on the the about button, the bio button, and also clicking on the portfolio button, and there are sections on there all about that investigation. Human mind must make a pack. We must make a 
Hi, this is Scott Ross, lead investigator on the Michael Jackson trial, and you are listening to the MJ cast. Thank you for listening. Our next question comes from Bongani uh, underscore MD on Twitter. B-O-N-G-A-N-I underscore MD on Twitter. He says, what would you say to folks who are of the view that you come across as too harsh on Mike at times? I would say what I said earlier um, to the person who asked me about shouldn't we just be positive all the time? 
There are many, many fans who are of the opinion that anybody who criticizes Michael in any way is not a real fan. Now, to put that opinion into an extreme... Well, let me say this first, because like, I'm aware that in the last few days there's been somebody on the MJ cast Facebook or Instagram or something who's been saying... Charles Thompson used to say that Michael was guilty, right? I have never, ever in my life said that Michael was guilty, ever. Now, I've said things like, Michael brought it on himself. I believe that to this day. I still believe that to this day, particularly in the second case. You know, when, you've, when your decision to share a bedroom with somebody else's son has resulted in the catastrophic sequence of events that the Geordie Chandler allegations caused to allow somebody else's son into your bedroom under any circumstances is clearly an extremely stupid thing to do and it's indefensible it's an indefensible thing to do so i have said things in the past like michael brought it on himself i have said things in the past like i could understand why some people might think he was guilty i've said in the past that i believe that tom sneddon believed michael was guilty i still stand by all of those comments those comments unfortunately were interpreted by some fans at the time as me saying I thought Michael was guilty. That is not what I was saying. I've never said that. But there are some fans who view any any kind of criticism as being like an affront to Michael. Like you you know you can't criticize him because if you criticize him in any way that means you're not a real fan. Well let's put that into a particular hypothetical, right? Michael Jackson is doing a Thelma and Louise, right? He's got his foot on the accelerator and he's driving towards a cliff edge. So you've got two fans there, right? One of them is screaming and clapping and going, yeah, Michael, you drive off that cliff. What a great decision. Everything you do is brilliant. I'm always positive. I hope you crash really badly because that's great. Then you've got another fan stood next to them saying, this is clearly not a good decision and I'm extremely worried and I'm worried for Michael's mental health. The fans who say you should be positive all the time, according to them, the fan who's cheering Michael on as he drives over the edge of the cliff is the fan that's doing the right thing, right? Fans who are negative, they're not negative because they don't like Michael. They're negative because they love Michael. And I've described it on the MJ cast before. If you have a relative who's making really bad life decisions and you love your relative to pieces and you just want them to be happy and safe and you just want the best for them at all times, then you don't clap and cheer when they're doing things that are destructive. And the same was true with Michael. You had this huge contingency of fans who no matter how bad his decisions were, they were prepared to stand there and clap and cheer and tell him that his decisions were fantastic and were prepared to say no Michael you should have dangled the baby off the balcony that was a great decision the people who are in the wrong are the ones that say you shouldn't dangle a baby off the balcony there were fans that would say no Michael you should be sharing your bedroom with other people's kids it's everybody else that's wrong and you know it's not your fault that you've been falsely accused again well that that's all very well if you want to think that way then think that way but you're not doing anyone any favors least of all michael i just don't understand the mindset you're literally clapping and cheering as he drives the car over the cliff that's what you're doing you're clapping and cheering as he drives the car over the cliff so if you want to do that then that's your prerogative right but me i loved him I was very worried about him. I cared about him. To this day, I'm very disappointed and upset by some of the decisions he took because they were destructive. 
And if he hadn't taken those decisions, he probably still would be here today. So, yeah, there are fans who say that I'm too harsh or that I'm too negative. Those are the fans who clap as Michael goes over the cliff. If you want to clap him on his way over the cliff, go for it. That's not me. Sorry. JD, who is called at Mixing History on Twitter, says, How did you get involved with Jamin and Q? Well, I remember that I used to know Jamin on Twitter when he posted under the name Stellar Soul, or Stellar Soul 2001, or something like that. And I didn't know that his name was Jamin. I had no idea who he was. He was just a, a, a profile on Twitter with like a picture of Michael and the name Stellar Soul. And uh, he always seemed like an extremely rational and balanced and witty fan, and I liked him a lot. I always appreciated his tweets. And then Jamin and Q set up the MJ cast, um, and they invited me on to... I was on the very second episode ever of the MJ cast, I think, as the guest. I didn't really know what the show was or, you know, (laughs) what it was going to be about or whether it was going to be kind of a crazy, happy, clappy weirdo fest or I just had no idea what the show was going to be but I knew that if Stellar Soul who I now know as Jamin was involved then it was probably going to be sane and rational. Jamin and Q have become two of my best friends in the world there's not a single day that goes by that I don't text message with them and stuff and we all check in on each other and we're all always making sure that we're all okay and sharing our lives and um I look forward to meeting them in person one day, but uh, I love them both very much and I'm very appreciative that I've become such a a fixture on the show because I think it's a fantastic show. I love the fact that they're so rational and level-headed. I love the fact that they're not afraid to stand up against the estate and against the Casio tracks and all that stuff. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, how did I get involved with Jamin and Q? They invited me on the show and, and I bit the bullet and said, okay, that's how I got involved. But it's one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. Uh, Azmat Mahmood, a.k.a. Azmat Mahmood 98, that's A-Z-M-A-T-M-A-H-M-O-O-D 98 on Twitter, says, Would MJ have ascended to the top if he had never worked with Quincy Jones? What a great question. Well, I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest. I mean, because he may have gone and worked with some other super producer who would have done just as fantastic a job i mean to me off the wall is probably the closest off the wall and thriller probably as close to being perfect albums as is humanly possible they are really phenomenal pieces of work those albums would not exist in the way that they do without quincy jones and and you know given that they are as close to perfect as anybody really could ever reasonably expect an album to be, would Michael have created something as perfect if he'd gone and worked with a different producer? It's got to be unlikely. So I think, to be honest, no. I mean, you have to remember that prior to Destiny and Off the Wall, uh, Off the Wall in particular, the Jacksons kind of were not doing that great. I mean, they were, they were doing okay, but they were not, like, on top of the world. They were not playing giant football stadiums. They were playing little rooms in Vegas. They were playing casinos and stuff. And it was off the wall, really, that shot Michael back into the stratosphere and shot the Jacksons back into the stratosphere. So without Quincy Jones, there would not have been an off-the-wall in the way that it existed. 
uh, with his input. I think it's unquestionable, probably, that, that Michael would not have, his career would not have gone on the same trajectory. That's not to say that maybe five years later he might not have met some other amazing producer and, and done something else that was fantastic and shot him to the top of the charts, but Off the Wall was a perfect collision of all these different circumstances. Michael was in the right frame of mind and Quincy was in the right frame of mind and Swidian was available to come and help and Temperton was available to come and help. And the guy who wrote Human Nature, Pocaro, you know, all these guys just ended up in a room together and perfection grew out of it. You can't buy that kind of alchemy. So, you know, thank God. <laughs> thank God. Thank God that, that those circumstances all collided in the way that they did because you know imagine what terrible tragedy it would have been if just one of the the links in that chain had broken it could have just changed history it's a miracle that that it all came together in the way that it did as matt has another question he says which songs would you have wanted mj to perform live on his tours that he never did um wow what a great question i would say i mean there's tons of stuff from Off the Wall and Thriller that I would love to have heard Michael perform live. I would love to have seen him perform I Can't Help It. I would love to have seen him perform a duet of It's the Falling in Love. I mean, you know, the amount of concerts that were marred by performances of I Just Can't Stop Loving You. Always, always horrific, those performances, just terrible. Imagine how much better it would have been if instead of I Just Can't Stop Loving You, he'd been performing It's The Falling In Love. I mean, at least it would have been an interesting instrumental, even if the vocals were hideous. It would have been, you know, a bit more entertaining than bloody I Just Can't Stop Loving You. I think I would love to have heard Michael performing PYT. Oh, Lady In My Life. Lady In My What A Travesty. He never, ever performed Lady In My Life. There's a great piece of footage that I saw on Facebook that I'd never seen the other day of Michael in his photo shoot for Luomo Vogue, uh, which he did in about 2007 or 2008, uh, the black and white photo shoot that he did with the crazy MC Hammer trousers. And they're playing the Thriller album in the background and Michael's dancing to it for the photo shoot and stuff. And they're playing Lady In My Life. And the guy is filming his face and Michael is like completely lost in the song and he's still singing along to every word. He knows every word of that song. And when you think, I mean, it would not be unreasonable for Michael to have forgotten it because I have to assume that Michael did not play Thriller all day every day at his own house. It would have been kind of a weird thing to do. That would be like me of a weekend going, do you know what I fancy doing? Reading the newspaper that I spent all week writing. So it clearly had a, a resonance with him that like 30 years or something, well not 30, like over 25 years later, he still knew that song inside out. That, I found that just incredible, especially since he constantly forgot his lyrics on stage. <laughs> you know, you can see those clips of him on stage performing Beat It, where he forgets the words completely, just like, I'm really not scared. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I would love to have seen him perform Lady in My Life. I'd love to have seen him perform... Um, PYT uh, now what else would I like to have seen him perform oh Liberian Girl I would love to have seen him perform Liberian Girl it's a beautiful song I would love to have seen him perform Give In To Me See, and Keep The Faith So, like Keep The Faith I understand because he blew his voice out recording Keep The Faith it was such a massive vocal 
the story of Keep the Faith, I don't know if people know it or not. As I think I know it from Brad's seminars, the In the Studio with MJ seminars. But Michael recorded the demo for Keep the Faith. And then by the time he came to record the final track, his voice had changed. His voice had dropped slightly. And he could no longer hit the notes that he could hit when he first wrote the song. And he was trying and trying and trying to record it. And he just couldn't do it, and he got really upset. I think in Rolling Stone, actually, I think in, at the time, Rolling Stone re- reported that he cried in the studio because he could not do it. So he went away, and they changed the song. I think they brought the whole song down slightly. And he came back a, a little while later, a few days later, and sang the shit out of the song. Like, completely, it was like he had something to prove. And he sang the song so powerfully that he actually broke the microphone. And uh, at the seminar... Brad was able to isolate the vocal so we could all hear the microphone breaking. Now, would it be reasonable to expect Michael to recreate that vocal night after night on a tour? Probably not. I mean, he would have wrecked his voice. But nonetheless, it would have been nice to see him perform it somewhere, uh, maybe at an awards ceremony or something. You know, there's so many songs that Michael did perform that he performed them in a... You know, he lip-synced them, which is just to... you know, he might as well have not done it. I just hate lip sync performances. I think they're completely pointless. So I would love to have seen him actually properly perform Will You Be There? That would have been fantastic. Childhood, I would love to have seen him perform live. Uh, Little Susie, I think, would have been phenomenal to watch him perform live. Um, so, you know, there's there's a bunch of songs. I would love to have heard him as an adult retackling songs like Music and Me um, and With a Child's Heart. I actually thought that the perfect way... I knew that what Michael did when he came to the O2 would be some sort of ludicrous, overblown, bombast fest. But what I really would have loved that first night at the O2 is if all the lights had gone out and he just would have sung Music and Me. If, if that had been the first song of the first concert, it would have just been mind-blowing. So yeah, that would be... Uh, I mean, there's probably a list as long as your arm, but those are the ones that spring to mind. Liam, a.k.a. W-C-E-L-I-A-M, W-C-E-Liam, on Twitter, says, You might have answered this on another episode, but if MJ survived, how would This Is It have played out and the years after for MJ, in your opinion? Well... In my opinion, Michael was not fit to perform those shows at the time that he was due to perform them. And this comes back to something I said a minute ago about how I wish he would have opened the O2 show with Music of Me. The shows were clearly being built into something gigantic that a 20-year-old, a 20-year-old would have struggled to keep up with the show that was being built for This Is It. The amount of choreography, the amount of special effects and set pieces. I mean, it was a gigantic feat for anybody to perform, let alone somebody who A, was now 50 years old, and B, was recovering from a massive trauma, a massive psychological and physical trauma, the trial. I mean, he was really on the brink of death by the end of that trial. I wish that he would have turned the shows into something that he could handle a lot easier and a lot better. Um, I think he should have put the focus on his voice. Apparently he went backstage at a Prince concert in about 2007 in Vegas and they had a meeting and Prince said to him, I forget where this was reported now, it was reported somewhere, Prince said to him, 
when you come back, it's all got to be about your voice. People fell in love with you because of your voice. And I really wish you would have heeded that advice. You know, to see Michael, you look at most of the, the This Is It movie and he really does not look well. He looks like he's struggling to keep up. He looks like he's struggling to remember the choreography. Of course, there's that strange moment in the middle of the thriller dance where they cut away. They cut away from the thriller dance to show a slow motion vid video of some skeleton puppets that you've already seen about five minutes ago it's clear that they've they've cut away there's no reason to cut away to that apart from that there was something they needed to cut away from which i assume was michael not knowing his choreography he he ballses up the choreography on smooth criminal i mean he just looks like he's really struggling i think had the show's gone ahead it's quite likely he would have collapsed you look at the costumes as well you look at michael's physique and he was really incredibly skinny uh, by the end of his life especially when you compare him to like the history tour the way he looked on the history tour he looks about half the size and the costumes that are being designed assuming that he ever was going to wear them because apparently he i've heard that he didn't actually plan on using zaldi's designs but some of the stuff that zaldi designed looks so heavy and cumbersome and difficult and you imagine michael looking that skeletal wearing all those clothes those big heavy clothes under those baking stage lights and I just think he probably would have gone down after about two songs just hit the deck he does not look to me like he is in any fit state to be performing those concerts how would it have played out I mean I would love to have seen it play out beautifully uh, they were planning a whole years-long campaign it was not supposed to finish in London he was going to take the, the residency around the world he was supposed to be doing the Super Bowl again. I would love to have seen that all pan out. But honestly, it goes back to what I was saying earlier in the show. My assumption at the time that I bought the tickets was that I would never get to use them. I didn't think it would be because he was going to be dead. I never thought that. I just didn't even conceive of such a situation. But I thought that the concerts would be cancelled. I thought that AG would sue him. I thought that because of his depleted resources, that would force him to sell the catalogue. And I thought that the whole thing just reeked of doom and disaster. So honestly, if Michael had not died, I'd, I don't think things would have panned out well. Now, the other thing is that somebody who was very close to Michael said to me a few years back, they said, do you realise that if Michael hadn't died, he would have gone to prison? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, the people that were managing him in the last few years of his life never filed his tax returns. So for several years of Michael's life, there, there was just no tax returns to the IRS. So had he been alive, he would have been prosecuted for tax evasion, almost certainly. And that would have, he would not have been able to get out of that, I don't think. I mean, because I don't think he could have paid the bill. You know, he just almost lost Neverland. So again, short of selling the catalogue, I just don't see how he could have avoided going to prison so it really the whole thing looks very grim to me even if michael had survived i wouldn't imagine it would have ended well liam asks a second question he says <laughs> he says at what point did you realize that the estate are fucking trash was it as soon as branca was announced as co-executor i think i did not know as much about john branca and about the whole situation as i do today uh, of course, none of us did, because over the years, many things have happened which have informed our opinions. I think the moment 
at which it all changed for me. There were two moments which were not really comparable in scale, but they happened around the same time and they were both disappointing. The first was the Vision Box set, where they claimed that all the videos had been remastered, uh, and then you played them and they looked like shit. And um, they also released the box set in the wrong in the wrong frame rate into Europe, so they didn't play properly, the videos didn't play properly, and I just thought, wow, that's really shoddy, that's absolutely shoddy, you know, it's not difficult, it's really not, how, it's got to be more difficult to get it wrong than to get it right, surely, you've, you've taken the videos out of the proper aspect ratio, and change, I mean, that's actually more, it's more difficult to get that wrong than to get it right, you've actually changed the video, anyway, so, <laughs> so that was a real shoddy product. I was really pissed off with that product. And then, of course, the posthumous album came out with the three fake songs on it. And, you know, I've spoken many times about um, the fake songs and my initial reaction. My initial reaction was that they didn't sound right, but to me it seemed like lunacy that it w could ever happen. How could it ever happen that Sony the biggest record label in the world, would allow fake songs to come out on a posthumous album. It just seemed laughable. But the more you listened to them and the more you learned, it just became, you know, impossible to ignore. Um, and what was more disappointing than, than the release of the songs was the response to the fans' campaign, was the, the arrogance and the dismissal by the estate that was very disappointing. There was there were other things that they did which I found quite disgusting. One of them was when Catherine Jackson tried to release a photo book in Michael's memory and they stopped her. I thought that was disgusting to stop a mother from paying tribute to her own son. There was the sabotage of the Jacksons' charity tribute concert in Cardiff. I thought that was absolutely disgusting and despicable. The estate actually overtly, unashamedly campaigned to try to shut down that concert. that I just thought it was absolutely disgusting. The way that they tried to mock and undermine Michael's family. So when the family raised questions about the will, the estate released a statement which said something like, Michael's family were conspiracy theorists who Michael deliberately left out of his will. I thought that was absolutely disgusting and indefensible totally unprofessional uh, to take the piss out of grieving relatives. I thought it was absolutely disgusting. And there was the siding with AG over the Jackson family in the posthumous uh, trial, the, you know, the wrongful death trial. That was absolutely disgusting. And one thing that I thought was really heinous as well, when Jermaine's book came out, Jermaine uh, has a whole chapter in his book, which is about This Is It. And for that chapter, he interviewed various different people that were present for the This Is It rehearsals. And he collates together the stories that they told him. And it's a very grim, upsetting picture of Michael being extremely ill, extremely upset. And the people around him are not helping him in the way that they should be. And in fact, are kind of mocking him and, and uh, mistreating him. And at the time, John Branker went on to the Piers Morgan show, the, the old Larry King show that Piers Morgan took over in America. I can't remember what Branker was on there for, but while he was on there, Piers Morgan mentioned the chapter in Jermaine's book and says in Jermaine's book, he says that Michael was unwell and he was struggling and uh, he was not being helped in the way that he should be. 
Does that, you know, what's your response to that? And John Branker says, I have no knowledge of that, and I have no idea why Germain would say such a thing. What we later learn through the AEG trial is that John Branker was an active participant in an email chain for about a week before Michael's death, uh, in which he and others were discussing Michael's failing health. AEG had brought Branker in. They were trying to get Branker back on board because they were looking for help in, in managing Michael. And um, he is actually actively reading and responding to emails in this chain all about Michael's failing health. So at the time that John Branker appeared on the Piers Morgan show and tried to discredit and undermine Jermaine and his book and to suggest that what Jermaine had written was not true, he knew that it was true. He knew that it was true because he had been a participant in the discussion in the days before Michael died, all about how unwell he was. And so he deliberately used his television appearance to try to discredit and undermine Michael's grieving brother in the eyes of the public. And that is disgusting. It's just absolutely disgusting and despicable and indefensible to try to discredit somebody in that way. Um, and that kind of is demonstrative of the attitude of the estate. You know, to, to try to discredit Jermaine in that way, to release the statement about his family being conspiracy theorists who were left out of his will, to try to shut down the family's charity concert, to try to shut down Catherine's book. You know, the, even, even up to date, you know, with the, the statement they issued about Quincy Jones, where... They were found to have ripped off Quincy Jones. They owed him $10 million, um, and the jury forced them to pay it. And then the next day, what do they do? Do they apologize? No. They release a statement denigrating Quincy Jones and saying, he's not the real, he's not a real artist. Michael Jackson is a real artist. And Quincy Jones is stealing food out of the mouths of Michael Jackson's children, basically was what the statement said. It was a disgusting, unprofessional, juvenile, idiotic statement. And it just demonstrates that unprofessional... It's, the, it's just the, the venal, unprofessional, disgusting way in which the estate operates. But I think that that moment where John Branker appears on television and deliberately tries to undermine Jermaine, even though he knows for a fact that what Jermaine is saying is true... And he goes on TV and tries to make him look like an idiot. I've, that just epitomizes the Michael Jackson estate. That one moment is just like the epitome of what the Michael Jackson estate is. And it disgusts me. But I would say it all began uh, back in 2010 uh, with the Vision box set and the, um, and the Michael album with the fake songs. Lars Van Egmond, a.k.a. Lars Van Egmond, on Twitter, so it's the same name. <laughs> so Lars Van Egmond on Twitter says, What are your thoughts on this is it? Would Michael have been able to deliver, or was he on a road to self-destruction anyway? Right, I've already answered that, Lars, so just skip back about ten minutes. Bella, whose name on Twitter is Bella Popov, Bella P-O-P-O-V, says, 
How did you react when MJ passed away? I don't think you've ever shared your June 25th story. Okay, so I kind of told you a bit of it earlier. So what happened was a friend of mine called me and, or sent me a text or something and said, um, what's going on with Michael then? This is a friend of mine who's a fan, but not a fan community member. But, you know, he's, uh, he loves Michael's music and stuff, but he's not a, a fan fan. He said, oh, what's going on with Michael now then? And I didn't know what he was talking about. I just said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And he says, oh, maybe you should look at the news. And I see uh, Michael rush to hospital. And as I said earlier, like Michael Prince, I just kind of went, oh, here we go. You know, that's the end of those concerts then. Might as well uh, <laughs> put in for my refund now. I just assumed it was some sort of HBO 1995 type, you know, collapse or some attempt to get out of doing the concert or something. I just thought, oh, I knew it. I knew it. But um, as the situation unfolded, it became clear that something was actually seriously wrong. And the moment at which I knew something was seriously wrong was when the BBC started reporting on it. Because, you know, if, if Inside Edition or someone are reporting on something, you, you can kind of go, well, who cares? You know, they're all full of shit anyway but when the BBC started reporting it I thought ah something serious is going on here and then people started reporting that he was dead I remember that TMZ reported that he was dead and I thought oh well it's that's just TMZ I was starting to panic but I thought oh, well it's only TMZ and then I, was, I had the TV on and um, and the BBC the BBC anchor said the BBC has confirmed through independent sources that Michael Jackson has died and I knew then that he actually was dead I knew he was dead uh, if the BBC had was reporting it then I knew he was dead and I think I just kind of put my head in my hands and just sort of cried a little bit um, and then started touching base with fans that I knew because I knew there were people who I knew that would be distraught and destroyed by that. Uh, so I wanted to check in and, and make sure people were okay. I rang one of my friends, Kent, and he didn't actually know. He was on an aeroplane and he'd just landed somewhere. And so I, I told him uh, while he was just waiting to disembark his aeroplane. That night, I I didn't sleep. I did not sleep for probably... I mean, if you if you include the time, because of course in in UK time, Michael died in the evening. He died at about I forget the time. It was probably confirmed at about seven p.m. or something by the BBC. I know it was the evening, and um, and so I'd already been awake all day. And that night I didn't sleep. I just watched the rolling news, and I actually appeared on a couple of news broadcasts because uh, at that time, in addition to my role at MJ Star. Well, actually, I'd left MJ Star by then. Uh, we there had been a mass exodus, and we'd all moved to a different private forum. But because of my prior role with MJ Star, and also because by that time I was working with The Sun um, as almost like their Michael Jackson correspondent, I started getting phone calls from media organizations. I don't quite remember who I spoke to on the night itself. I've got a feeling it was... Sky News, was it Sky News? I got a feeling it was Sky News and BBC World Service on the radio. 
and I did a couple of interviews and I was just so dazed. It didn't even seem real. I remember watching that footage of them lifting his body wrapped in a sheet on the hospital roof, uh, either onto or off of a helicopter, and just thinking, this can't be real. The whole thing was completely surreal, just completely surreal. I remember the next morning, every TV show was all about Michael Jackson. Every, every TV show that all anybody was talking about was Michael Jackson. And uh, I remember that night, Channel 4 was supposed to show something, and they took it off. And they replaced it with an hour of Michael's music videos. And I made it through right to the end, kind of without falling apart. And then I remember they showed, um, I think it was Man in the Mirror. But instead of showing the proper Man in the Mirror video, they showed a montage of footage of Michael uh, from throughout his career. And I remember watching the, what really upset me was they included all this footage of, of Michael as a kid and as a, a very young man and I was looking at his beautiful face from like the Don't Stop Till You Get Enough video with this huge smile across it this beautiful, happy, joyous young man and I was just thinking Look what, look what they did to him. Look at, look how beautiful and happy he was. And now look what's happened. And what a fucking tragedy this is. What ter I mean, and I just went to pieces. And I just thought, it, it, we've just destroyed this. We've destroyed something beautiful. Society has just killed something so beautiful. And what a tragedy. And it, I just went to pieces. And I've got a feeling, I, I don't remember very clearly, because obviously I was very tired by, by then, but I have a feeling I didn't really sleep that night either. I, really, I, I, I mean, I really was in like... It's not an exaggeration to say I was in a daze. Like, it almost felt like my ears were full of white noise and the whole world felt slightly off-kilter and wonky. And nothing quite seemed real. I mean, I, I, did, I really, my, my memory from that point on is kind of fuzzy. Uh, but a few weeks later, I went up to the O2. They, they were doing the, uh, the memorial, the memorial that was broadcast around the world from the Staples Center. And they showed it on the giant screen outside the O2 arena. And a bunch of fans were going up there to watch it together. And I went with my friend Angela. And, um, Obviously, it was very emotional, and we were all clapping at a certain point. I remember Al Sharpton got a huge cheer and so on. I remember the moment they brought the coffin out to that gospel song, No More Crying, We Were Going to See the King. And um, I just remember that so many people, just the moment they wheeled the coffin out, I could hear people all around me just collapsed into real bad crying. Um, but the point, the point, <laughs> the point at which I lost it was, um, they were singing, it was the point where Judith was singing Heal the World or We Are the World or something. And, um, I kept, somebody kept shoving me in the back or the arm or something. I was thinking, what, why is somebody 
you know, I'm trying to watch this memorial and somebody keeps hitting me. And in the end, I turned around and what it was, they were tapping me because um, spontaneously, everybody that was there, these dozens or maybe a couple of hundred people that were there watching on the big screen, they had all formed a circle and they were all holding hands and singing along. And I, I just, I just thought, I just lost him. And we were all holding hands and singing together, and it was just such a beautiful moment. And it was not in any way pre-planned. People just did it spontaneously. And I remember that CNN or someone was broadcasting live, and they actually cut live to London. I don't know if they showed me, but I know they showed the circle and everybody holding hands. And I kind of felt like this is his legacy. You know, the you've got all these people who don't know each other and they're all stood in a circle in London holding hands and singing together and it's because of him um, of course the fan community didn't remain like that for long and that's largely the doing of the estate uh, the fan community was torn apart by the fake songs really it just created a division in the fan community which has never ever been healed but yeah that's my kind of June 25th and post uh, story. It's a little bit fuzzy, to be honest, but I remember that the thing that really choked, like, the thing that really broke me down in the end, that on the 26th, was, um, was all the footage. It was not, it, it was the footage of Michael as a young man and how beautiful and happy he was, and it, yeah, I just thought, oh, what have we done? What have we done? the time when we heed a certain call when the world must stand together as one how people dying it's time to lend a hand to life the greatest gift of all we can't go on Pretending day by day That someone Somewhere will soon Make a change, make a change We are all a part of God's great big family And the truth You know love is all we need We are the world We are the children Make a brighter day, so let's not give in. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true, we make a better day. Just you and me.
about um, the generations and to say we want to make it a better place for our children and our children's children so that they, 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 they know it's a better world for them and think they can make it a better place. There's a place in your heart and I know that it is love And this place can be much brighter than tomorrow And if you really try You'll find there's no need to cry In this place you feel there's no hurt or sorrow There are ways to get there If you cared enough for the living Make a little space Make a better place Heal the world Make it a better place For you
Hi, this is Sam from the Michael Jackson Academia Project, and you are listening to the MJ Cast. Bella's next question is: Why do you think there's so much? <laughs> why do you think there's so much willful delusion and denial in the MJ fan community, and how can we combat it? I don't know why, and I don't know if it's unique to the MJ fan community. I've never been involved with any other fan community to the extent that I have the MJ fan community so i don't know whether this is something which is exclusive to the mj fan community i suspect that it's not i once said something about justin bieber on twitter and i got spammed with all this abuse from justin bieber freak people and um i just thought wow these people are really mad and then uh i'm sure i got spammed with abuse by beyonce fans once as well i thought wow these people are all nutcases as well so i think it might be something that just exists within all fan communities. But I think I remember as a young fan, I joined the fan community, and as a young new member, there was a lot of dogma. I spoke earlier about J. Randy Tarabarelli, right? And the the way that it was just like everybody in the fan community was just like, he's bad and that's it. And I really didn't know anything about him. I hadn't read his book at that point. And I just went along with it because that was just like the dogma of the fan community. And it was something that I railed against years later when I was an MJ star. This sort of mandatory, as I used to call it, like mandatory self-delusion, like in the book The Wizard of Oz, where everybody's forced to have the the green-tinted spectacles like uh, padlocked to their head. You know, where you're not allowed to view the world in an objective truthful way because truth is bad truth is bad you know that's the way it is in a, in a lot of the michael jackson community is truth is bad and i think when when you get to a point where you're fighting against truth that really is not that you, something is wrong there something is wrong with a picture where somebody is where the truth is bad the truth can get you banned from a Facebook group or from a, a message board or from wherever you know you should not be penalized for truth and uh, you know it's, it continues today where there are fan sites where if you say anything negative about the estate even if it's true if you say anything negative about Sony even if it's true if you say anything negative about the Casio tracks even if it's true you are banned you're censored or censored or banned or some kind of action is taken against you or you get piled in on by crazy moderators or other members of the forum or whatever there's this huge culture in the Michael Jackson world of censorship there's even uh, one or there's a couple of groups actually there's one forum and one Facebook group where they just delete the and any mention of the MJ cast is censored and the reason it's censored is because the MJ cast speaks out against the estate, against Sony, against the Casio tracks. And the people that run these groups and these websites are in the pocket of the um, the people who are behind uh, the Casio tracks. They're in the pocket of the estate. They're in the pocket of Sony. And often, for nothing, for nothing, it's not like they're getting paid a million pounds a year for their cooperation. They're doing it for a fucking free CD. They're doing it for an invite to a free album launch party. It's so pathetic. It's this kind of simpering, pathetic gratitude for some sort of acknowledgement from the estate or from Sony. It's really sickening.
I mean, why does it exist? I don't. I don't know. I don't know why it exists. I don't like it. I think it's dangerous. What I was saying earlier was, uh, you know, I came into the community, and as a youngster, I was kind of taken under the wing by these older fans, and they feed you this total bullshit, and then they send you out in the world to make a complete idiot of yourself. They tell you, oh, Michael's never had any surgery. It's all lupus, and all this stuff, and you go into school. As a kid, I used to go into school, and people say, oh, why do you like Michael Jackson? Look at his face. And I go, actually, Michael's never had any plastic surgery except for two rhinoplasties, and that all the other things about his face that have changed is because of lupus. And people would laugh at me, and of course they would laugh at me, because that's stupid. It's a stupid thing to say. But when you're a child, and you join up to this fan community, and you have all these older people that are telling you that's the way it is, you just absorb it and you go out into the world and you repeat it. I was lucky at school. I was teased. I was not beaten up. But I have heard stories of youngsters who were Michael Jackson fans who were actually physically bullied at school because they went into school with this shit, this total nonsense that they had been fed by irresponsible older fans who did not care if these people went to school and made a fool of themselves. And I really used to rail against it massively when I was working um for mj star because i thought it was dangerous and i thought it was irresponsible to put kids in that position um why does it exist i don't know what can we do to combat it just tell the truth just tell the truth even if you know you're going to get banned even if you know you're going to get censored even if you know you're going to get flack tell the truth that's what that's what michael told us you know and um I always get kind of irritated with these fans who... Because there's even fans who accept that the Casio tracks are fake, but say, well, get over it. Just, do you think Michael would have got over it? Do you think that's what he would have done? Is it is that the message of Michael's songs? Get over it? Where Which song was that? I must have missed that song. Get over it. Michael never preached get over it. Michael preached action. Michael preached protest. Michael preached justice. And it's and it was from early in his career, he was telling us all the time, stand up for the truth, stand up for what's right. You see it all the way through the history album, of course, and, and that whole era, and they don't care about us and so on. But you can look back to the Thriller album, you know, uh, hold your head up high and scream out to the world, I know I am someone, and let the truth unfurl. No one can hurt you now because you know that it's true. I believe in me. Do you believe in you? What's he telling us there? Is he saying, I'll get over it? He's not saying get over it. <laughs> you know, Michael never preached get over it. Oh, well, you can't stop wars. They're always going to happen. So you might as well just accept it. That wasn't, Mike. <laughs> that wasn't Michael's message. Michael's message was fight for what's right. And, um, you know, in the, in the same way that we fight against the estate and Sony and the same way that we fight against the Casio songs, we must also fight against other things in the community which are not as they should be. And one of those things is the complicity of uh, those who run the, the fan sites and the fan groups in the wrongful activities of the estate and of Sony. There are many, many prominent fans who uh, go along with whatever Sony and the estate want to do, and they censor any fan who speaks against Sony and the estate. And they actually run smear campaigns. Look what they did to Peter Mills. Look what they did to Peter Mills. He wrote an article about it recently. His book was about to come out. They used pictures of his children. 
they dug out things that he'd written years ago which were written as jokes and they tried to represent them as truth they do it to me they dig out things that i said years ago and then they misrepresent them and say that i used to say michael was guilty which i've never ever said that they you know they they do it to anyone with sam habib they got hold of pictures of his kids and started uh, mocking pictures of his kids and then there was um uh, db anderson who uh, falsely accused Sam of threatening a jihad on anybody who supported uh, the estate and the Sony, which was completely Islamophobic. It's, it happens to any any fan who puts their head above the parapet. It's happened to Jamin and Q. It's happened to the MJ cast. The MJ cast is censored on fan sites. There is a major, probably the biggest fan forum in Britain, if not the biggest fan forum in the world. The MJ cast is banned. You are not allowed to mention the MJ cast. They actually have a filter on the website so that if you try to mention the MJ cast, it won't let you publish it because they are totally in the pocket of Sony and the estate. There is a forum on Facebook which deletes any mention of the Casio songs being fake, deletes any criticism of Sony or the estate. And this is a... It's a Facebook group which describes itself as like a historical society for Michael Jackson fans. And it censors. It censors truth and fact. And um, it's just wrong. It's so wrong. That's not what Michael preached. That's not what Michael was about. Michael was about truth and justice and standing up for what's right. And yet the most prominent people in his fan community in most cases are anti-truth, anti-justice anti-protest, anti-standing up for what's right. They actually go along with the breaching of Michael Jackson's publicly stated wishes. They go along with the continued sale of and profit from fake songs. They go along with all kinds of stuff that any Michael Jackson fan with a conscience should be protesting against. They go along with the degradation and the humiliation and the mockery of Michael's grieving relatives. They just go along with it. And it's deeply shocking and sad and disturbing. And I hope that one day we can uh, reach a point where the balance has been tipped and the fans who are on the right side of history will be the dominant fans and the prominent fans and the ones with the following. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. The most prominent fans in the community in most cases are shills, and lackeys for Sony and the estate. It's, it's really upsetting. And all it took, all it took to buy them was a couple of free Cirque du Soleil tickets, a couple of free CDs, an invite to a party, ticket to Las Vegas. That's all it took for them to throw the man they claim to love, their supposed hero and idol, under the bus. All it took, a free holiday. A couple of tickets to a Cirque du Soleil show is just sickening. It's absolutely sickening. Disgusts me. We've got to get rid of them. We've got to stand up to this culture of delusion and denial, as you describe it, Bella. We've got to um, right the balance. We've got to create a fan community where truth and justice prevail. We're not there yet. And we will never be there as long as fans take a fatalistic approach. I was on a, another another episode of the MJ cast 
a few weeks ago with somebody where we were discussing the the release of the stupid um, Halloween thing that the estate had done, the uh, compilation thing, whatever that was, that's, that bullshit. Anyway, they um, and they were saying, well, you know, if fans feel like if they can't change it, then they should just be grateful for what they're getting. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's not what Michael preached, man. That is not what Michael preached. Oh, well, we're never going to stop the war, so we might as well just appreciate the oil, you know? <laughs> that's, that's just, I mean, what fucking albums were you listening to, man? You've got a, you can't profess to be a Michael Jackson fan at the same time sacrifice all of his ideologies for the selfish pursuit of sort of temporary satisfaction of, of I, oh, I've got a shiny new CD, so I don't care. I don't care if all Michael's wishes are being breached. I don't care if he's been sold in death to a record label he hated. I don't care if somebody he was frightened of is now running his estate. I don't care if fake songs are being released in his name because I've got a shiny new CD, so I'm satisfied for this year. Roll on next year. Hopefully there'll be a hologram I can go and pay fucking... 300 pounds for a ticket for I mean it's just sickening just sickening if you love Michael and if you're a fan of Michael then actually listen to what he told us and go along with it you know just how can you be a Michael Jackson fan and and support so it just boggles the mind really boggles the mind listen to Michael absorb the message and take it forward because that is what he recorded it for. That was the purpose. He wasn't recording it for his own amusement. He wasn't weaving these messages into his art for nothing. We were supposed to pick up the baton and take it forward. So let's take it forward. Anyway, I've been talking for a long time. Thanks for listening. Jamin and Q have asked me to list the songs that were played in the episode but I haven't actually chosen what they're going to be yet so I'm afraid I can't do that I have been asked to explain to you the benefits of subscribing to the MJ cast as a podcast now as a proud uh, Luddite and technophobe I don't actually subscribe to any podcasts and I personally don't see any benefit to doing so um, just fills your phone up with with data and eats up your memory. But Jamin and Q think there's a benefit to it, so go and do that anyway. You can subscribe to us on uh, Apple Podcasts, whatever that is, uh, on iOS devices. Presumably you can sign up somewhere else on non-iOS devices, I don't know where. Just Google, it's probably on Google, just Google it. You can contact us on MJ on uh, Facebook, as the MJ Cast on Twitter, as at the MJ Cast on Instagram, as at the MJ Cast by email at the MJ Cast at iCloud.com and our website, which is where I download the podcast from, um, using my right click save target as button on Internet Explorer. The website is www.themjcast.com. Jamin and Q say they will be back in a fortnight's time with another episode. Don't ask me what it is because they don't tell me anything. Hopefully you've enjoyed the show. I've nearly completely lost my voice and I'm now going to go to bed. Cheers. Bye-bye.
whoa, there we go. Charles Thompson Q&A. Hope most of you are sitting down for that one. <laughs> it was pretty full on. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad we had Charlie to do that. It was excellent. Thanks again, Charles. Thank you very much. You know, we've done a Q Q&A and we've done a C Q&A. I wonder if the end of the year might see a J Q&A. Maybe. We'll see. Ooh, keep your eyes peeled and uh, maybe we'll have to advertise that. So we'll see how many questions you get, Jamin. Probably more than me again. The, the benchmark's 41. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll beat me. So there you go. <laughs> we'll see. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Um, music. Yeah. We played some tunes as we are off to do. We had uh, we started off with Music and Me live in Mexico. There was also I'll Be There live at the proms in Antwerp well, by the Jacksons and the beautiful Judith Hill with a Heal the World, We Are the World performance that was uh, from MJ's Memorial. I wonder why there weren't any remixes in this episode. Oh, gee, I wonder. <laughs> Guess what? We've actually added a 20-minute remix to the end. Mashup remix extravaganza <laughs> for Charlie. <laughs> uh, it's a, a Skrillex mashup of all oh of the God. Invincible songs. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really bad. Yeah. Can you imagine I, a Skrillex, The Lost Children? Oh, God. Oh, yeah, I can because there is some really bad invincible mixes out there that I've heard that I were like, nope, still can't find many good invincible mixes. (laughs) The MJ Cast.